Hello, fellow and future dancers, and thanks for listening to the Dance Floor Podcast. I am Lauren Johnson, and on today's episode, I'm joined by my friend Natasha Newman. I've known her for over 15 years, and when I think of solo practice exercises, I think of Natasha. She's always been a dancer who's impressed me with her discipline in creating really great dance habits for herself outside of any partnerships. And right now, with the effects of social distancing, we're not able to practice with our partners in the same way that we have been able to. We're not able to be in the studio, and we're not able to socialize in the same way we have been before. So Natasha takes us today through some really great ways to develop good habits in setting up a solo routine for yourself, giving yourself a time frame, making yourself accountable, and setting realistic goals. Hope you enjoy. All right, Natasha, welcome to the podcast. And for those of you who don't know, this is actually Natasha's second episode with me on the podcast. You were with me for, it was, I don't know, like one of my first two or three episodes, I think. Yeah, like six months ago. For those of you who haven't listened to it, kind of go back in the archives because Natasha took us through some of her best budgeting tips for ballroom dancing because we all know that it can be sometimes a little bit of an expensive hobby. And we had some really great tips on how to save money there. So go check that out. Save that money. Yes. Well, thank you for having me again. I'm thrilled to be on one more time. Well, you have fantastic advice and we've known each other for, has it been like 15 years? I'm pretty sure it has. It's been a really, really long time. It's been a long time. We should have a party. We should have a party. We should celebrate that because who stays friends with someone for 15 years anymore? That's crazy. (laughs) Especially someone who lives out of state. So you are talking to us from Tennessee? Yes, Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. And so what's the vibe like in Tennessee right now? Because obviously we're, well, we're talking from long distance because we live far away. But even if you were here, we wouldn't be able to hang out right now because we're all doing social distancing. Probably. I live out a little bit farther out. I'm in a more, it's like a rural suburban area. Okay. So to be honest, we feel a difference, but at the same time, daily life has its same routines. And one thing I was curious to ask you about, because you are a stay-at-home mom and you have four children that you homeschool, has your life really changed a lot because of this? Because now obviously your husband is home more often, but has your day-to-day routine changed much? Are your kids noticing it or does it feel kind of like regular life right now for you? My kids are small enough that thankfully they're they're kind of unaware and I'm happy to keep it that way. I don't want to put worry on them when they're that young. They right. don't need it. Um, but because I'm a stay-at-home mom and because we already homeschool, there was no major shift in their lives with the exception of their father is home every day. And they've kind of gotten used to that now, which is fun. That's fun. The biggest difference I'd say is for me, and I know a lot of people don't think of this. They're like, stay-at-home moms, it's the same. It's normal for them. In a way it is, but I've lost my break. So usually once or twice a week, I have a chance to schedule a babysitter or my husband being home that I can go out and even simply go to the library and have quiet. Or once a month, I schedule myself to go out social dancing. So those breaks are now gone. So picture it this way. Think of it instead of quarantining yourself at home, think of being quarantined at work. 24 seven. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel the, like that's and you're worse. Not allowed to go home. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine so. if we were on the opposite <laughs> schedule of social distancing? Like, cause I mean, I know a lot of us are struggling with this, this idea of being stuck at home for the same sure. reasons you said, even just simple things like going out to grab a coffee, just getting out of your house. But can you imagine if it was the opposite? What if we'd all been quarantined at our place of work? I feel like that would have been a thousand times worse. <laughs> 
Yes, and you're so suffering for, from both right now. <laughs> for stay-at-home moms, that's the struggle that we're dealing with. We're not dealing so much with an upheaval of a schedule. We're dealing with that sense of break from our work schedule because staying at home with children is it's 24-7 work. Yeah. That break is taken away. So I've had to deal just with, all right, I need to find that break somewhere else. So I've taken a lot of walks. You just figure out a different way to get through in the same way that I'm pretty sure people now having to work from home are figuring out how to make that work. I know for my husband, he's needed a couple weeks to figure out what is a normal routine at home for working. It can be done. You just, you change how you do it. So what would your advice be for anyone who is not a stay-at-home mom, but because we're all now having to work from home, what would your advice be to those parents who aren't used to having their kids with them all the time, keeping them entertained or keeping them focused or giving them enough playtime and creativity? What would your advice be for those parents that are now home with their children all the time and they're not used to it? I would say two big things of advice is one, to find a consistent routine. Kids and adults as well, but kids especially, if they've been taken from school and then now they're at home, what is most jarring thing for them is a loss of normal routine. Right. So to recreate that in a different way at home is really helpful for them and really helpful for adults. And then the second thing is just give yourself a lot of grace. That's amazing advice. I know that we're kind of gearing that towards kids that are home with their parents, but I think just even as adults, we need that too, because the days when I've gotten up and showered and tried to treat a regular day like this, like a day that I would be working, I have felt much more, not even, I don't want to say productive because I, I, I honestly can't say that I've done a lot of predictive things with my time yet, but I feel much more myself. I feel better as a person. So the, the more routine and structure we can have, I feel like the more sane we feel. And it's not an easy feeling to achieve right now. Exactly. I know for us with my husband being home, he really needed to figure out how to recreate a similar consistency, such as he drives a lot when he is working. Mm -hmm. And so his commute in the morning, he didn't realize until he was at home how important that was for him setting up. Usually that 30 minute commute in the morning, he doesn't talk to anybody. He listens to scripture in the car. It's his kind of mental and spiritual wake up for the day. And then the first two couple of weeks that he was home, he didn't think of doing that because he wasn't physically getting into the car and going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of weeks, realized that tenseness was there because he needed that. So he figured out instead, I'm going to take a walk in the morning. It may not be 30 minutes, but it's like 15 minutes. And he listens to scripture on his headphones and he gets that space and that mental and spiritual quiet that he needs to get going for the day in the same way that you would shower and get dressed. And he realized that once he put that into place, all the days have felt smoother since then. That one piece of just consistent routine made a big difference, but it's hard to recognize what is that thing that you need and then how do you get it in a different place with different factors around you? Yeah, because there's so much of our routines that we're taking for granted right now. And I, I think I can speak for every single person in the universe right now when I say that one thing that we're going to learn having come out the other side of this is how much we've taken for granted. And it's the simple things. Oh, definitely. Like I miss going to the library. And it's that little thing once or twice a week that is just really nice. And now I'm extra thankful that we have libraries. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. 
So when I was discussing with you times where we could sort of coordinate and set up this call, we were discussing that it was Easter this weekend. And you had mentioned as we were talking about different days, you had mentioned that yesterday was Passover. I know that your family celebrates Jewish traditions and you guys are Christian. And I was just curious about how those two faiths and those two separate religious traditions came together as one thing in your family. That's a great question. An interesting story. And I'll try to keep it short because it can be very long. (laughs) I'm sure. Two, Two religions. And in one family, I'm sure is an interesting story. (laughs) Definitely. My background is not Jewish at all. I'm brought up Christian, am a Christian. But then when I met and married my husband, my husband and his family are also Christian, but he is of Jewish descent. His father was born in Israel. His grandparents escaped the Holocaust. I mean, solid Jewish heritage. Right. Um, So he grew up Christian, but also emphasizing his Jewish heritage is how he explains it. So he did not grow up practicing Judaism but he grew up observing the Jewish feasts throughout the years, a lot of the traditions, because it was a part of his heritage. And Judaism doesn't necessarily contradict Christianity. They are very linked, very strongly. Christianity, if I had to explain it, is in the sense of fulfillment of Judaism. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. We can observe the Jewish feasts without in any way inhibiting our Christian beliefs. If anything, they go together very well. It's kind of a wonderful thing that we've been doing, one, to continue my husband's practices that he had growing up, but he very much wants to pass down to our own children. Because if they're not practice, if it doesn't become a habit, um, it just kind of gets lost from one generation to the next, and we don't want to see that happen. It's been not only fun, but very wonderful to have as a part of our family. I've I've very much enjoyed it. That's a beautiful way to honor and respect Dan's heritage and where he's come from and where his family is and the history of that. And I think it's really cool that you guys have created some of those new traditions as a family together. What does honoring Passover mean to you guys? What is something that you guys do to keep that tradition alive? Well, the practice of observing Passover is a remembrance of of the account in Exodus of Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. So it's very much a story of freedom and the passion for that and the way that God delivered his people as promised from slavery out to a land of freedom, which I think we as Americans feel very strongly tied to. That's tied in very tightly. So Passover is the observance of the last night of the plagues, this last and final plague that God will take the firstborn son of every single family. And that night, God commanded that the Israelites to spare their sons were to take a newborn lamb, to slaughter it, and take its blood and spread it across the um, threshold and door frames of their doors. And at that night, the angel of the Lord passed over the houses that had that blood protecting them and their sons did not die. And that night they were also commanded to eat certain food that was roasted, roasted lamb. They were commanded to eat bread that didn't have any leaven in it, so bread that did not rise, so flat bread, and to eat prepared, to eat relaxed, and get ready to go because the following morning they all left. See, that's amazing because that was my next question I was going to ask you. So what food do you make for your family at Passover? Do you do unleavened bread? Do you do roast lamb? Like, what are some of the things that you do? There is the traditional observance of the Passover which is not actually the meal. People think of it as the meal. If you think of it as the meal, you'll be really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) On the plate, you have a boiled egg, a roasted lamb bone, parsley to represent bitter herbs, a piece of lettuce. You have haroset, and haroset is made out of chopped nuts, dried fruit mixed in wine, apples, and a little bit of honey. 
It's very tasty. And a piece of horseradish. So that is the ceremonial plate. So the beginning of Passover is when you go through each of those and you partake of those bits. And each of those connects to a piece of the story of Exodus. Then you have the Passover meal. And the Passover meal is really based on where you came from. Dan is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, which means Eastern European. So his family came from Poland. So we'll eat things like matzo ball soup. Uh, sometimes you have chicken. In this case, we had roasted lamb because we had it. Cooked rice with mushrooms and onions. You have chopped liver, which doesn't sound appealing, but it's actually <laughs> quite good. Beets ground up to make a horseradish sauce, which I've never had before. And it actually mellows out the horseradish. So if that's too strong, that's a good way to have it. Interesting. Uh, what else we have? Oh, gefilte fish. Gefilte fish is like a cold fish meatloaf. Delicious. Again, <laughs> I keep telling Dan wow. that every year I want to heat it up, and I'm pretty sure he passes out when I mention that. Ew. I'm trying to think of what sounds crazier, warm fish meatloaf or cold fish meatloaf. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would taste better warm just because it's weird to me that it's cold, right. but it's very good. It's all very tasty. It's just different foods. It's not ones that I ever grew up eating or would necessarily have, but it, it's neat. And that varies from family to family with tradition, where they came from. So Dan's family being from Poland and Eastern Europe, those foods that we eat are very Eastern European Typical. Well, I think that's incredible that you guys have respect and you're still honoring those traditions from his family and you're sort of combining these two religious beliefs together. Like you said, one is the fulfillment of another and you're creating these traditions and these memories with your family. I think that's beautiful. It'll be interesting to see how people connect and are able to make new memories with their families this year because it's going to be interesting with the distancing. Yeah, we honestly, as of now, we don't have a very solid plan of what we're doing on Easter, but we'll figure it out. It'll still be good. We'll probably, and I'm sure a lot of families in the same boat probably do a lot of phone calls a lot of zoom on easter to connect with family to keep that connection together. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is because a lot of the things that I had wanted to podcast on before the quarantine started happening are a little bit null and void right now because we can only practice by ourselves. Or if you're lucky enough to be living at home in quarantine with your partner, you can practice with them, but you may be limited on space. You may right. even just be driving that other person crazy. And the last thing you want to do is dance with them. So when I think about solo <laughs> dance exercises, you are the first person that pops in my head because when we used to work together, you were so self-disciplined when it came to practicing on your own. And I feel like a lot of that structure came from you as a student. When you were a student, you didn't have unlimited resources in taking lessons. So no. you were very, very structured in how you planned out your practice time per lesson. And I, I was hoping you could kind of talk to people a little bit about how much structured practice time you gave yourself per lesson that you take or used to take, because I found that fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that was many years ago. So it's, it's nowhere a reflection on what I'm able to or do now. <laughs> but <laughs> back then when I was a student, because I also didn't have a partner, my partner was my teacher. And the only time you typically have access to a teacher is during a lesson. Right. So really any practice time was automatically on my own because I didn't have access to a partner to practice with. I knew I had to practice on my own. So I thought, all right, if this is what I have to do, then I'm going to make the best of it. Thankfully, I was blessed to be able to work only about three miles away from the studio that I took lessons at. After work, I would immediately drive to the studio and I would practice usually about 
two hours? Did it seem like I was there two hours? Yes, it seemed like you were there for 10 hours every day, to be honest. (laughs) You in your little corner by the mirror, just wearing a spot in the floor over there, you practiced unendingly. It's a happy corner. Yeah. But yeah, on average, I would practice about two hours after work every day, five days a week. And that was regardless of whether you had a lesson that day or not, right? You would be at the studio practicing. Yes. They were totally fine with me coming into practice. So I would have a mirror and space and music was already playing. So that was wonderful to have. In my opinion, you're you're one of my favorite dancers. I feel like not only are you incredibly technically proficient, but I also just think you're beautiful and creative. But I think that one of the reasons that I've always found you to be such a strong dancer is because you practice so much on your own. And I've talked about this in other podcast episodes, but I think especially in ballroom, we're so tempted to use our partners as an excuse or a reason to practice or not to practice. When in reality, so much of ballroom and partner dancing starts with who you are first. So much of your balance, so much of your footwork, so much of your control, so much of your body isolations have nothing to do with your partner. And I I don't think that we really put as much importance on that solo practice as we should. And maybe for people that are stuck either having to practice by themselves or practicing with a partner less, maybe this is a perfect time to sort of reawaken that part of your dance. It's very true. It's a good skill to know how to do in the sense to be able to practice steps alone. Like you said, because ballroom is partner dancing, you don't naturally think of as a need. Right. But I think I remember long ago a coach telling me that unless you can do all the steps by yourself, you haven't mastered them. And if I got to that point, then I knew I could do it even better with a partner. Yes, because you can use them as a tool to make your dancing better, but you don't have to rely on them for that support and that structure. Exactly. So it's worth being able to at least learn how to do. If we're going to kind of walk through some good practice habits that people can develop at home, whether they're very comfortable dancing by themselves or whether they've never even thought to start a solo practice, what would your first tip be in getting them started? Like, let's say they're listening to this podcast and they're like, wow, you know what? I have a really small kitchen, but it's enough space for me to move around in a little bit. What would your advice be for them to start their practice tomorrow? Oh, well, to not let the space daunt you or lack thereof. Lewis and I have coordinated entire routines in our kitchen. And I promise you guys, our kitchen is the tiniest place in the world. And if we can choreograph a professional routine in our kitchen, you should have no problem practicing anywhere. (laughs) Make it work. Exactly. And when I was practicing at the studio, you saw me in what was then labeled my corner. Yes. The corner was maybe six by six. Yes. I rarely left the six by six square. (laughs) Yes. You can do anything in that amount of space. So don't let lack of space daunt you because it doesn't actually matter. What you need to practice and technique that you want to work on, you can typically do in a very small space. There There are very few steps that require a lot of space to move. And even when you hit those, you can still make it work. And the next thing is to go in with a plan. If you go into practicing on your own, just saying, I'm going to wing it, you're not going to feel very accomplished. You're going to feel struggled. It's just not going to go smoothly. Oh, you're so right about that. It does not need to be an elaborate plan. Back as a student, when I went into my corner and, you know, had that time to practice, I would go in and I'd have a list each day of the steps that I was going to work on. I didn't work on everything. I would work on one routine if there was a routine that I was learning, or honestly, I think it came down to three steps. That was it. 
And why do you feel like that simplicity is important and that specificity? One, because narrowing it down to a handful of things really helps you focus on what that step requires of you. It's so easy to be distracted by everything else that has to be done. Mothers and really anybody knows the pros and cons of having a to-do list. Right. (laughs) The good thing about a to-do list is it gets you organized for your day. The bad thing about it is the to-do list sometimes can be long and distracting. Sometimes you get overwhelmed before you even start because there's too too many things. And then you rush through them. So with practicing, I think it is far more detrimental to rush through your steps than it is to oversimplify and only work on two things. So go in with a plan, pick a couple of things, like no more than five, I would say, if you have a half hour practice for yourself and actually focus and practice every aspect of what those steps require. And then you'll see progress come from that. So could you kind of walk us through sort of a sample practice session that you might have with yourself about how much time would you give yourself? What would be the first thing you do? Kind of like walk us through that process of just a sample practice. Sure. For me, because of my schedule with kids and homeschooling, all that, I very rarely get an an actual solid block to practice. And that's okay for me and where my life is and the reality that is my life now. I've learned to accept that, that I don't have an hour or even a half hour to practice, but I can carve out 15 minutes and practice around my kids because they think it's fun and slightly hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> so work with what you got, but 15 minutes consistently is still a steady stream of progression. Well, I think that's huge because I think a lot of people would say time is a big excuse for them. They'd say, oh, I don't have an hour. I don't have two hours to practice. But really, that 15 minutes is is really building up a muscle memory. Exactly. 15 minutes is workable. You can think of it as a 15-minute break between two shows. You know, start watching The Office, take a 15-minute break, and then watch your next episode. Okay, so now you've got your 15 minutes. What do you do in that 15 minutes? Well, I've learned through the years and being in my 30s, your body tells you what it wants. <laughs> Warm up is super important. Okay. So my husband is not a dancer, but he's a musician. And when he has chunks of time to sit down at the piano and practice, I noticed that as a classically trained musician, he had learned at a young age that you always warm up your fingers. And so he always takes a solid two minutes and does his scales. Isn't that funny that a professional musician is sitting at the piano and doing scales? Because we think of that as something that little kids are doing to learn dexterity with their fingers. But this is the same thing that we go back to as dancers. I had this conversation with one of my students just recently. They walked into the studio as Lewis and I were practicing or just warming up with something right before their lesson. And he said to me, his name is Steve. He said, were you and Lewis doing a rumba box? And I said, yeah. And he's like, why were you doing a rumba box? That's crazy. (laughs) Like, that's what we do. And I'm like, of course, the simplest things are the things that we practice. And we always go back to the basics. So the scales, it totally makes sense. Exactly. And it's to the purpose of it to warm up your fingers. And if you've ever learned scales on the piano, scales are simple, but they require a lot of precision in order to maintain even beat, even tempo, precision of your fingers. It requires a great deal of skill, but it's an excellent basic skill to use as a warm-up. So I would say the same thing for starting a practice session. Take two to five minutes of the 15 minutes, which is, again, not daunting, and give yourself a warm-up routine. Like you would before you, if you went jogging, you would start by walking. Never start running right away. Warm up your body. And do something simple. Like when I do it, I put on music 
that is fun because my kids will do this with me. And I'll do something simple like 10 jumping jacks because that gets the blood flowing. Mm -hmm. It's not even dancing, but it just gets you going. I'll do three boxes, be it rumba or waltz. It doesn't matter the tempo, but something basic that requires me to think about where are my feet? Where's my body? I'd say the box is the equivalent of scales for dancing world. You need it. It's good. And then do three rotating boxes. Then second position breaks. I could spend an hour working on second position breaks. Oh my gosh. Yes. They're both fun and simple and incredibly frustrating. (laughs) Isn't it funny? Just like a simple side rock and there's just like this whole universe behind it. You could spend a lot of time, but it's a good warm up. I like to do cha-cha basics because they require several different directions and motions. And I'll do that to fun music. That'll get you going. And then another one that's really great is do a couple bolero basics. Because bolero is the best dance in the world. It's gorgeous. And a bolero basic requires a lot of sweeping and reaching and stretching. So it's a good one to do last. Do not start with the bolero basic. So do you think of that as sort of like your cool down to sort of like stretch out the rest of your muscles? Exactly. It's because you do it too early. I feel like I'm at that age now where I will pull a muscle and the bolero's out there to pull my muscles. Yeah. So save it to the end of your warm-up. Honestly, start to finish, those were six set of steps that I just mentioned, including jumping jacks, would take no more than five minutes. Right. And then you're warmed up. Your body's ready to go. Your brain is awake. You're focused on the right thing. And then if you think it out, you only have 10 minutes to finish your practice session, which is not overwhelming. And then you can take those 10 minutes and pick two or three steps that you've decided I'm going to focus on today. Even if you did that once a day, you would make steady progress. I don't think that it's necessarily a bad idea to just start out with these 15 minute solo practices, because if you go into it going, wow, I've got 10 hours today with absolutely nothing to do. So I should practice dance for at least three of those hours. It really is. It's like that too long to do list. It's kind of overwhelming. It's exhausting. Even just that 15 minutes of getting your body warmed up and active and moving, I feel like is, is really, really great for people. Exactly. 15 minutes always feels doable. Think of it as um, like exercising people that try to get into a regular exercise routine. I'm of the the mindset where I've given up on four 45 minutes. Yeah. There's plenty of workout programs that are awesome, but they're 45 minutes. And I'm like, I don't have 45 minutes, but I do have 25. So I figured out a way that 25 minutes a day is doable. So same thing with practicing. Absolutely. I love that. I think it's simple. You're not over committing yourself. You're just getting your body moving. You're not overanalyzing anything that you're doing. You're just having fun with it. Exactly. I say for the warm up, especially pick music that you like, even if it's not ballroom danceable. Sometimes I like to put on Arctic Monkeys and warm up to that. And it's not even, that's not Bolero. That's not Rumba. (laughs) It's definitely not Waltz, but it's fun music for my kids and I to listen to. It just gets the blood going. And then you can shift things to a more serious focus. Make it easy for yourself to succeed in this. So if we're giving people this idea of going into solo practice just 15 minutes a day, how would you recommend for people whose schedules change from day to day? How do they keep this practice consistent? How do they keep it going every day, even though we have crazy schedules on a normal basis? No, that's definitely one of the biggest struggles for people trying to find a consistent routine. I had read Twyla Tharp's book, Creative Habits. Yes, I love that book. You recommended that a couple years ago. I love it. It's so good. I would recommend it for any dancer and any artist because she does a fantastic job with linking creativity with discipline. 
which we don't always think of going as hand in hand, you know, because as artists, we're so, well, I just felt like doing it. We use that as an excuse. Like we don't put discipline into our art. It contaminates it, you know, but they go hand in hand. Those two things hold hands as opposed to fight against each other. So that book, highly recommend to read to give you ideas and to just help think through how creativity and discipline link together beautifully. On one of her recommendations, one of her examples that I loved and it made me rethink how I try to create a new creative habit was she mentioned in her book that every single morning she goes and works out for two hours, Mm -hmm. which first of all, I'm like, wow, that's impressive. (laughs) Right. I can't make it 45 minutes, two hours quite good. Yeah, that's impressive. But when she was asked about how did she maintain such a consistent intensity, because she has done that for 20, 30 years now, something like that, which is amazing. She said the key to her consistency to working out was not the working out itself. And that caught my ear because I thought, "Isn't, isn't that the point? Right. That's the whole habit. The key to making that a habit was her hailing a cab every morning. Interesting. Because once she was in the cab, the workout has already begun. Before I heard that, I never thought of a practice beginning before you've actually begin it. <laughs> <laughs> because you're sort of setting up the dominoes, I guess, in, in the sense of as soon as I get in the car, I have to head to where I'm working out. And then it just sort of all like snowballs from there. Exactly. But you think of it, if you if you take apart, and especially for those that are struggling with being home for working, if you take out the pieces of what made your work routine consistent, you'll find those in place, such as for my husband, because he goes out to work. For him, it was get up, take a shower, get in the car. Those were his pieces to get going. His workday began with the shower. And it's very simple. It's not a big thing. So I would say that if you're struggling, find the thing that gets you started before that. So for me, kind of an odd one, which is weird, but because I'm at home all the time, it's doing the dishes. I can only practice in my my kitchen and living room is an open space and it has wood floors. So that's the most convenient place for me to practice. Okay. But dishes on the counter, I can't focus. So for me, do the dishes and go ahead and already have the music playing. And then I automatically just start. I don't even put on shoes. I've given up the requirement of having ballroom shoes on when I practice ballroom in the kitchen. Oh my God. I'm so with you there. I feel like you and I could do an entire podcast episode on how your shoes don't even matter. <laughs> if putting on the shoes is this thing that stops you from practicing, forget about the shoes. Think through what is the key piece that happens before you practice. It can be simple, but it may be something unexpected that you wouldn't think of. So for me, when I was a student, I would ride my bike from where I worked to the studio and then practice. I found that every day that I rode my bike to work, I was more likely to go practice than compared to the days that I drove myself. Interesting. Why is that? The riding the bike was that key difference. It's because I was already ready. I had in a backpack, I had my dance shoes, I had everything ready. So I no longer had an excuse to not do that final step, which was practicing. Because on those rare days that I would just ride my bike home and unpack my backpack, I would look at everything and think, I didn't finish my day. Wow. It was that last piece that was missing. So in our 15-minute segment of practice that we're recommending, think of it as what is that key piece you do before practice? The second piece is the five-minute warm-up. 
your third piece is 10 minutes of practice and that's it. Obviously you can always extend a practice if you want to, but if you get into your mind that this is all I have to do, it can be done. Sometimes those little victories just motivate you to want to be consistent and want to do more. And like you said, if you have 20 minutes, if you have 30 minutes, that's even better, but set that small goal so that you can achieve it and meet it. And that's, what's going to help with the consistency overall. And another thing that connects to this, another habit book that I recommend is Atomic Habits by James Clear. He's one of the first habit writing authors that I've read who made it very attainable for making or breaking habits. One thing that's helpful is he paired with Twyla Tharp's recommendation is find that key thing that you can do that naturally leads into the next thing. I'll give you a different example that's not connected to dancing, but can kind of make sense is I have always struggled with drinking enough water. And I know a lot of people struggle with this. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm really bad at remembering to drink water. And I'm not the type of person that even remembers to carry around a water bottle. Props to those people. They are awesome. So after reading this book, I've realized I was looking at it, creating a habit of drinking more water the wrong way. He recommends pairing the new habit that you want to create with an already established habit. For example, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I drink a cup of tea every morning and I always warm it up in a microwave. I found that if my tea takes exactly two and a half minutes to heat in the microwave, I can fill up three tall glasses of water and leave them on the counter where I can see them. And I found that if the water is placed on the counter where I can see it, I will drink it. That's so funny. So you have like a little water relay race set up for yourself all ready to go. My husband thinks it's hilarious, but if they're there, I drink them. And it doesn't take any more time out of my day. I'm already waiting two and a half minutes anyway. So when it comes to dance practice, to find that thing that is natural to do, that you link it next to the one that you want to become natural, it'll feel so much smoother. That is so smart because I feel like we all have those things that we do that we don't have to work to do. We just have these little idiosyncrasies that are part of our habits naturally. So if you attach a new habit to one that's already existing and that you don't even have to try to keep consistent, that's half the work done for you. That's incredible. If you're having trouble making yourself do something, either schedule it with somebody else, doing a Zoom practice session with someone else for 15 minutes. And it doesn't have to be a teacher. So if you're if you're in a place where that's not affordable for you right now, just just find an accountability partner, find one of your other student friends. And a lot of what Natasha is talking about right now, I mean, the first three things you mentioned in your practice, I I mean, obviously, aside from the jumping jacks, were boxes, second position breaks and cha-cha basics. So even if your friend is at a completely different dance level than you, it doesn't matter. You can still set up that accountability partnership and, and, and do practice sessions with someone else. And it doesn't have to be a teacher and it doesn't have to be at, with someone who's at the same level of dance as you. Exactly. So it can be done. You just have to think in a sense outside the box when it comes to making practice a consistent habit. I love that. And I think that's incredible even outside of the social distancing. If you want to meet up with a friend at a studio, if you want to do even just 15 minutes together, or if you live far away, you can still do the Zoom call or the Skype call and have that accountability partner as your practice partner and still be practicing. I I love that idea. I think that's incredible. Our bodies can't thrive on total and complete spontaneity. I think we we need those moments of spontaneity because it brings it brings life and you need that. But I think as a whole we crave discipline and routine for our minds and for our bodies and it helps us to grow. Yeah, definitely. I'm finding that I'm realizing more and more every day that my body is just like this machine because yes. even the silly things like not eating meals at normal times 
like I normally would, are like making me feel weird. I'm like, why do I we feel weird today? Yeah, I feel cranky. It's like, oh, I didn't eat anything until two o'clock today. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's why. So it's just, it's funny that's, how yeah. much you realize, you know, all of the things that you do take for granted in, in your day-to-day routine that your body does sort of rely on. And whether that's the food that you eat or the way that you're eating or even just the physical activity or something I can really identify with Dan with his commute, just that that time to have that personal time to himself to listen to scripture, yes. listen to music, listen sure. to a podcast, whatever you do. That's those are the things that we're really finding that I think we rely on more than we would have thought. It mentally sets you up and, and that's what you need. It helps a lot. And another thing too I wanted to say is don't forget that exercise and working out is also a dancing aid. So even if it's a day where you haven't done an actual practice session, mm-hmm. is I'll say to myself, okay, fine, I'm going to do 20 minutes of yoga. And that's for me very relaxing before I go to sleep. But I know that I've practiced balance. I've practiced containment, holding myself, stretching. And I've realized that I've come through the end of the day and I have not forgotten about it, but I've used something else as an aid. So don't forget that if for some reason you get through a day and you've gone jogging, but you haven't done your practice, you've still aided that skill. So we've kind of gone through the steps of how you would structure a practice routine, not even just the routine itself, but just keeping the routine consistent by assigning it to another habit that you already have, making sure that happens every day, setting small goals. What is the thing that you do to wrap up your practice sessions? So let's say you've started with your warm up, you've picked your maybe just two or three specifics that you want to work on. What do you do to wrap up your practice and sort of bring it to a close? <laughs> do you want the honest answer? Yes. Usually someone is crying. Not me. My practice comes to a close because somebody small needs me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And that's a very good excuse to stop your dance practice. <laughs> so I would say if you don't have small people crying for you, think of ending a practice session in a similar way that you would end uh, exercising is do a cool down or just stretching. Take two minutes and do a series of stretches and your body will thank you. So obviously we've talked about the warm up. We've talked about keeping your practice consistent. We haven't really talked specifically about what people can work on once they've done their warm up. What are some ways that you set goals for yourself in your dancing? Well, for me, I do teach a couple ballroom classes. So oftentimes my practice session is wrapped around what it is that I'm teaching that week. It brings back those steps that I may already know, but it forces me to practice them again and to practice them both the male and female parts and broken down into pieces. For me, my goals for that is to think through how to clarify teaching this to somebody else, how to demonstrate something clearly. So that means that my technique needs to be clear, that my footwork needs to be clear, that my arm positioning needs to be clear. So it forces me to make sure things are clean and put together because somebody else I know a few days later has to watch me. And then you need to have kind of like a hyper awareness on those things that you're going to be teaching. Exactly. So that's where my own practice session kind of zeroes in on. But everybody's individual practice session will center around something else. Maybe you're working on a routine for a showcase or you're pursuing competition. Then I would say break it down to what you need out of that practice based on what your goal is. So many people are afraid to either give weight to their weaknesses and 
they don't know what their strengths are in their dancing. So what what is one of the things that you feel like would be your answer to people like that, that say, well, I don't want to practice by myself. I know I'm going to do it wrong, or I need my teacher there. I need my partner there. Focus on two things you know can be done right. So for example, say you're a beginner level student and you know the rumba box. You've just started learning Cuban motion, which there's a lot that goes into Cuban motion. Yes, I'm still learning Cuban motion. <laughs> I'm still learning Cuban motion. <laughs> And you will never stop learning. You'll never stop. (laughs) It never ends. So if you're that and you're daunted and afraid that you're going to practice something wrong, go into it with two things you know can practice right. So you already know the box sequence. So at this point, I would say if I was the teacher recommending to a student what to practice, say practice keeping your head up. Nice. Practice keeping your feet turned out. Do that for one week. You'll find one. If those two things, which are very specific techniques, when those are in place, your body will naturally do the next level on its own. If you're doing the foundation correctly, the next level happens without trying. Because so much of what we're doing with our footwork is setting up the next step. That's why we always start with the feet first and build up like a house is because hopefully if we're doing that initial thing correctly, the other things will happen naturally. Exactly. And then ask your teacher the next lesson or Zoom lesson or however you're doing it. Can you give me two more things to focus on? Because odds are your teacher will notice that keeping your head up and your feet turned out are happening now without reminding you. So I think what people have a tendency to do. And like you said, that the excuse happens because you've automatically let your mind wander to the negative instead of coming back around to the positive that yes, I may not be able to focus on five or six different things that I'm just learning, but I can focus on two. I love that. I think that's really powerful because even for us as professionals, we have moments in our dance where we think, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about dancing. I'm a fraud. I, that imposter <laughs> syndrome of like, I don't know what human motion is. I have no idea. You know, we all have those moments, no matter what level your dancing is at, where you're questioning yourself. But if you really stop and step back and say, what do I know about this? And picking just two things to focus on is definitely going to keep your mind busy enough. I know even for me, if I'm just thinking of two things while I'm doing the simplest box. It's keeping my mind and my body busy enough. You could spend 10 minutes practicing only the basics of all the Latin dances and focus on only those two pieces of technique and you're done in 10 minutes. And that, if you did that once a day, five days a week, that is an incredible amount of practice. And it's so valuable, not only just from the perspective of you as a dancer and improving, but even just financially valuable. I'm always just astonished at how much people don't take their own solo practice and really get more bang for their buck out of their practice lessons with their teacher. I remember that was one of the things I was the most impressed with with you is you had said to me, I can't remember how many hours it was, but you had had this rule that whenever you were going to take a lesson with your professional instructor, you had set a specific amount of additional hours of practice off of that one lesson so that you weren't taking the same lesson twice. Yes. uh, I was paying for lessons on my own. And so I very early on realized I did not want to waste my money by taking the same lesson twice. Yeah. Every lesson that I had, I think I gave myself a minimum of three to five hours of practice for every lesson. So I would not repeat the lesson. Yeah. (laughs) So I could pay for lessons and learn things progressively but not have to pay for a review lesson was my concern since it was my own money. And, you know, it adds up. Yeah. It's not only a great way to save money, but it's just 
obviously the most useful way to progress faster because if you're practicing yes. in between your lessons, you're moving on to new information. And I think that's that's the most valuable thing for people is because one of the first questions we're always asked as teachers is, how long will it take before I get good? And we're like, well, <laughs> it depends on you. It doesn't really depend on me. I'm just here to give you the information. Right. You take and decide what you're going to do with that information. It's very much in your hands, which should feel empowering, not discouraging. Yeah especially if you set these small goals for yourself. So Natasha, we've obviously spoken a lot about how important consistency is with your dance practice and how important solo practice just is on its own. I think it's true in dance and I think it's true in life. You can really only control your own behaviors and habits. And I think right. the more you can rely on yourself, the better a partner you you just are in general and the stronger your dancing will be. Yes, definitely. So for people that are kind of either comfortable with solo practice or that are going to follow your advice and and build up a strong solo practice, what would be one of your recommendations for giving them more specific goals to get into their routine once they're comfortable practicing on their own? I would say the next level is to schedule for yourself a deep thought practice session okay. once a week. The concept of deep thought comes from another book. I'm all about recommending books this time in case you We've all noticed. got time to um, read new books, so recommend away. <laughs> so this book is called Deep Work by Cal Newport. And what I liked about his book was he was promoting the idea of in many ways we have hurt ourselves by being so comfortable with being distracted that our work suffers from it. So if you go into practice as a form of work, which is what it is, I would say to train yourself to have one practice session a week where you have no distractions. And this requires planning. And like for me, for my own life, I have to really figure it out because I've got children in the house and they're right. very good at interrupting. So the concept of a deep thought session would be no phone, um, no people around, no interruptions. So if that means practicing a room that doesn't have a TV or turning off the TV. Sometimes that means something as extreme as doing an entire practice session with no music. For a lot of people, that's very difficult, but I highly recommend doing it because you will find yourself focusing more on the steps that you're doing than being distracted by the music that you hear. And dancing music, obviously, is the core of ballroom dancing. Obviously, right. it's wonderful. But to train yourself to practice without music means that you've pushed yourself into a work bubble. The concept of deep thought is focusing in on something with blinders on, that nothing around you is taking you out of it. So when I was a student, I had to get used to very quickly practicing to music that didn't match. I would decide that day that I wanted to practice rumba steps, but the teacher at the studio teaching their lessons were teaching samba. So there would be samba music on. And I taught myself to block out the music around me. Now, yes, you could say that I could have easily just changed my plan for the day and practice the samba steps. But I went in with a plan and the goal was to accomplish that plan. So a deep thought session means to remove all types of distraction, even the music. Put a phone in a different room if text messages or anything bothers you. Turn off the TV. If you have a partner or you're married, ask that person to just be in a different room for 15 minutes. I love that. It almost sounds like almost like a form of meditation. It is, that's exactly what it is. You are meditating on a dance step. 
if you want to push your practicing to a next level, take one of those a week. Wow. I need to try that myself because I'm an extremely easily distracted person by my phone, oh, yeah. by other people. I, I, I constantly want to be interacting with either another person or just entertainment of some sort, whether it's practicing the music or not. And I, I love that discipline or that challenge of approach your dance as a form of meditation. And I, I think that's really yeah. fascinating. Just recapping all of the things that we've talked about today, the idea of staying consistent with your practice by attaching it to an already formed habit. I think that's incredible. And then we've talked about how important it is to warm up just with fun music, do some jumping jacks, jog in place, do whatever it takes to get your blood flowing. And then just doing some simple basics, whether it's a box, cha-cha basics, picking two or three things that you want to focus on for your practice that day, and then it's just a stretch to end it out. One of the things that you had mentioned to me when we were discussing the things that we're going to talk about on this episode that I feel like is one of the most powerful things is not comparing your practice routine to someone else's. And I think the reason I... I wanted to talk to you about this as we're wrapping up is because I feel like for us as dancers, although dance is such a subjective art form and no two people dance the same, it's one of the things in life that we are the most... I don't even want to say competitive, but we do really compare ourselves to other dancers so much in the way that we dance, in the way that we practice, and in the way yes. that we approach dance. Why do you think that it's so important not to compare either your dancing or the way that you practice to other dancers? Well, number one, you'll find that that in and of itself will distract you in your own practice, and you won't focus, and you won't accomplish what you need to accomplish. And second of all, because it doesn't matter. When you think about it, I mean, you know this firsthand, it does it actually matter if you dance exactly the same as somebody else. No, <laughs> it'd be boring. Exactly the same as it doesn't actually matter. It's so easy to fall into that comparison hole. And I know for myself, honestly, I still struggle with it. Yeah, me because too. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I do teach classes, but I am no longer a competitive dancer, and I no longer am able to practice two hours a day. So I struggle with comparing myself to other dancers that are my age but able to compete or even just compare myself to who I was 10 years ago when I could practice two hours a day. And you have to let that go. Don't compare yourself to somebody else because I guarantee you will always lose that game. Yeah. <laughs> always. And that person that you're comparing yourself to is probably comparing themselves to someone else. They have their own struggles with either how they look or how they dance or how they practice. It's, so again, it doesn't matter. It's not worth your distraction. It's not worth your energy. Don't worry about it. I don't want to waste my time comparing myself to somebody else and just enjoy the dancing that I can do. Here's the best thing. One day we'll all be old and back to doing only the basics. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm going to butcher this quote. I'm pretty sure it was Ernest Hemingway who said, we're all apprentices in a craft that we'll never perfect. Ooh. He was referring to writing, but I think it applies to dance as well. It, it definitely, I think it applies perfectly. Because it's true. We're all we're all amateurs still. Yes. Yes. So I do feel like it's very important that we don't compare ourselves to other dancers. I think it's great to have mentors. I think it's great to have people that we look up to and things that we respect about their dancing. But one of the things that you had mentioned specifically is to be honest about your own strengths and weaknesses in dance. And I think that's really, really important. And I, I actually don't think that we do that. I think that sometimes we focus too much on our weaknesses. I, sometimes I think that we ignore our strengths. So what's your advice for people in terms of really coming to terms with what their strengths and weaknesses are in their own dancing? It's a very fine balance because you're right. You can either focus 
too strongly or one or the other, and then it, it doesn't help you grow. But I would say to being truthful about your strengths and weaknesses is not to build up your strengths more than what they are. Mm-hmm. To recognize that you have a strength in this area, like I'm good at cha-cha, but I can be better. Recognize the strength, but that it can grow. I think that keeps it in a good, humble position. Be truthful about what you are actually weak at and recognize it and then make steps to purposely strengthen that. For example, I had a coach tell me a long time ago, and it's still to this day very true, I have weak ankles, which is ironic because I ballroom dance, but hey, (laughs) that's what you do. So I am very conscious of the fact that if I don't practice specifically or if I don't do specific exercises to strengthen my ankles, they will fall back to being weak. And certain steps, especially in sweeping motions of foxtrot and waltz, that's where it shows. The good news is exercises to strengthen your ankles can be done anywhere. It's just calf raises. I love that you brought up ankle strength because on the last episode, Lewis and I talked about how no one thinks about ankle strength and how important it is in dancing. (laughs) Very important. So another way to, if you're looking at it and saying, I don't know how to find out where am I weak and where am I strong, ask your teacher. They are wonderful. And if you say, I need something to practice, I need you to be honest with me about what is a one weakness that I have that I can practically work on. Because obviously your teacher doesn't want to stand there nitpicking and picking you apart. They don't want to do that. They want to help you. They also don't want to gloss over things that you could consciously work on to help you become stronger and better at your dancing. Yeah, if you ask your teacher for some realistic exercises that you can do at home between lessons, you will make their day. They will be so excited. They'll have so many ideas. And the great thing about your teacher specifically is if you are having a hard time, I think, you know, because we are so self-critical of ourselves as dancers, if you're having a hard time really being honest with yourself about what your strengths and weaknesses are, that's another great thing that your dance teacher can provide for you because they can give you a very realistic, objective perspective on that. Exactly. And knowing too that your teacher wants you to succeed. So what they tell you is the truth and not in a way that they want to harm you or make you feel you know, down about yourself, but they're telling you in a way for you to succeed. Absolutely. If you're struggling with this concept of solo exercise, reach out to your teacher. Just say, hey, can you give me just five ideas of some solo exercises I can do at home? And they'll definitely be happy to provide that for you. But either way, I hope that you've enjoyed these tips that Natasha's given you in terms of either starting a new habit of doing practice exercises on your own or possibly even just improving the solo exercises that you're already doing. So Natasha, as we're wrapping up, what would be your last piece of advice for people as they're sort of approaching or improving their own solo practice exercises? I would say to keep it realistic. It's very easy and we all know this from New Year's resolutions. Yeah, It's super easy to go into something with a very high aspiration plan (laughs) and then you realize you fall very very short so I would say go into it with your reality in mind such as for myself I have four children I homeschool I stay at home there's a lot of cooking and cleaning going on I cannot spend two hours a day practicing it's not realistic and if I set myself up for that I will always fail so look at your life what it is your own goals are not somebody else's not somebody else's life and figure out where it fits realistically for you and then you'll find that you can succeed and that you can do it I love that. And I think for all of you out there listening, if Natasha can do this and practice by herself in a home with four children and she's homeschooling them, I feel like none of us can come up with any other excuses not to practice our dancing (laughs) at home. 
No excuses in the quarantine. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for taking the time and giving us some of these tips. I'm excited to implement some of them into my own practice routine because I feel like you're inspiring me to do more than I have been doing. And I, I love how realistic and achievable a lot of these goals are that you're setting for us. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I've greatly enjoyed talking about it and it's gotten it back into my head of trying to get my own practice routine going again. So it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. So find some great music, find an accountability partner, go in your kitchen, go wherever you have six feet of dance space. That's more than you need. Exactly. And don't forget to give us a rating if you enjoyed this episode. And also don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can keep up to date for episodes in the future and keep dancing. Keep dancing.